This is the Conduit Church Teaching Podcast. Thanks for joining us. It's our mission to be a conduit of Jesus to the community in front of us and the world around us, starting with the teaching of His Word. Enjoy the message. Would you open your Bibles to the book of Revelation 14? I looked, and there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like the Son of Man with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. We are, you know, getting close to about halfway through Revelation here. This is during the, the tribulation period, okay? And things are, the, the, it's, the notches are getting turned up a little bit as these chapters go on. In verse 15, then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And so he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. In verse 17, and another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And still another angel who had charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, take your sharp sickle, that name just came over and over, and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. And they were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. That is 180 miles, like from here to Knoxville. Okay, a little bit of a drive. So that's God's word. Uh, this will be fun, right? So let's pray. Heavenly Father, <laughs> your word, whether it's Psalm 91 or Revelation 14, is your word. We believe it, it is inspired and it is a gift to us and it is my prayer, Lord, that today we would uh, experience the light that you have for us from your word We pray that in just the few moments we have, Lord, that your spirit would speak to us and move inside of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Do they still make kids read The Grapes of Wrath, the book? Caldwell's, do you guys have to read that? No? No? All right, some of us had to. Midwesterners? Okay, just showing your hands. Who had to read it in school as part of your thing? All right. Fascinating. I actually thought it was like required reading everywhere. Bungu, did you read this in uh, Kenya or London when you went to school? Yeah, it would not have been culturally relevant necessarily to what you were doing there. Uh, for those that don't know, Grapes of Wrath, the premise of this book, uh, written by John Stein back 1939, uh, was a family from Oklahoma, uh, the Dust Bowl, the Jode family. They lost everything. They had to move to California, part of migration immigrants into California to find work. And honestly, it's the end of the book before you even get to the name, The Grapes of Wrath. It's 
you know, California, it's beautiful in the springtime, uh, even though the entire country is being exited right now by people who are tired of paying high taxes or whatever. But, but back then, they really wanted to go there. And springtime was a beautiful time, but uh, the small families, the small farms were being crushed. The immigrants were being crushed by large landowners. Um, the wine that they had in these small farms was, was rotting in the vat. And, and, and from that, this line comes out of the book. In the souls of the people, the grapes of wrath are filling and growing heavy, growing heavy for the vintage. And from that one little line that was seemingly a throwaway line became the title to a Pulitzer Prize-winning book that has sold around the world. Now, sidebar, this book, when it came out, was banned in much of the United States. Did you know that? Also banned by Karl Marx. So if you can make both capitalists and communists mad, um, you probably need to read that. There's probably something in there for that. In all honesty, when you see something, this is, I mean, I'm actually only kind of kidding. When you see something that is being banned by powerful uh, organizations, powerful governments, powerful corporations, and they want to ban that writing, that speech, that you probably should look at it because there's probably a reason they want it banned because it threatens the power base for it. That's not new. Right? Familiar spirits, the Bible speaks of familiar spirits of demonic entities that have been around for centuries and millennia. You, you hold a Bible in your hand because uh, the Church of England did not want you to be able to read the Bible. They didn't think that you could be smart enough to read the Bible for yourself, and so they banned it. And men like John Wycliffe, who were burned at the stake because of their courage to say, we're going to print this anyway and stand up to let you read it. Uh, if, if the enemy wants it to be not in your hands, then he's going to use all means necessary to keep you from reading it. George Orwell did not make this up. This was started uh, at the beginning of, of time, but I, I digress. <laughs> the grapes of wrath. He didn't make up this name, this word in a vacuum. He comes up with the grapes of wrath from a song that most of us know, the Battle Hymn of the Republic. Do you remember that song? Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. You kids know this song? Do you know it? Kids know it? No? You don't? Okay. I don't know what they're teaching in schools anymore. I don't know. Uh, Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He has trampled out the vintage where the grapes of wrath were stored. He has loosed his faithful lightning and his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. Written in the 16 or 1700s, the Republic. But even that song wasn't made in a vacuum. That song was a direct reference to what we just read, Revelation 14, the grapes of wrath. Fascinating, isn't it? So in this passage is this idea that there is a wrath of what we saw in, in, in the grapes of wrath, that eventually you can only be oppressed long enough. You can only be marginalized long enough before you finally had enough. The grapes being ripe is you saying, I've had enough. The wrath is ripe. I'm going to do something about it. That was what Steinbeck was trying to say. That's what the Battle Hymn of the Republic was trying to say. And what Revelation 14 is saying is that God himself, looking down on earth, is going to say at some point, the wine press is full. I've had enough. It's time to bring justice to the earth. Now, in this passage is interesting 
Um, how many of you grew up Midwestern, Kansas, Nebraska, North Dakota? That's my wife. Would you like some eggs, Marge? Lanny and Gordy and like all the, you get Shannon up in North Dakota for any length of time and that accent will come back like with a vengeance, right? It's kind of hot. There's a harvest here, the first harvest, verses 14 through 17, which speaks of with a sickle, okay? The way that you harvest wheat is not with by hand pulling it out, but with, and we have modern machinery today, we call them combines, but all they are are giant monster uh, sickles, sickling the wheat. That, that's what's happening here. So the first few verses, and I'm going to tell you in a second why I think that he's harvesting wheat in this one. But then there's a second harvest where he says to a second angel, hey, you're going to go now and you're going to harvest and you're going to harvest grapes, but you also are going to use a sickle. Now, what's the problem with that? Grapes are not used, harvested with sickles. Go out to Arrington Vineyards with a sickle and tell Kip and Valerie Smith that I'm here to do some harvesting and you will be thrown out on your rear end because we do not harvest grapes with sickles. What is going on? I would suggest to you, by the way, that what happens here is the reason, the only reason you would harvest grapes in a vineyard with a sickle is if it's going to be the last time that that vineyard is harvested. Harvest of wheat a harvest of a vineyard, and uh, I want to show you who is doing the harvest because there's a beautiful picture. This whole bloodbath from Nashville to Knoxville, 180 miles, I want to show you in a second that there is a bloodbath going on here, but it's not the one that you think it is. So first, the harvesting of the wheat. Now, why do I say that I think it is the wheat? Um, if you've got your Bibles, in the book of Matthew, just a couple chapters backwards into that, 20 chapters more, I think about it, backwards, the book of Matthew, Jesus talks about a harvest that he says will happen at the end of the age. This parable that he tells in Matthew 13 about the kingdom of heaven, verse 24, I don't have it for the screen here, the kingdom of heaven is like a man sowed uh, good seed into uh, his field, but while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted, verse 26, and formed heads, then the wheat also, weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, did not you sow good seed into your field? Where did all these weeds come from? which kind of honestly is the story of every garden I've ever planted. Where did all these weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked, do you want us to go pull them up? No, he answered. Now, again, my little agricultural past, um, detasseling corn, pulling weeds out of soybeans, you do that in those crops because they're planted far enough apart that you can pull a weed up without hurting the actual plant. Not so in wheat. Wheat grows very close together. So pulling out a weed, a tear, which is connected to the roots below, will pull out and damage other wheat. That's why you don't see crews in there pulling weeds out of, out of wheat fields. 
And so Jesus says, when you're pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let uh, both grow together until the harvest. And at that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds, tie them in bundles to be burned, and then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Now the disciples did something. They said, what? <laughs> what, what? By the way, that's a good tool of Bible study. It's a good tool when you've heard somebody teach something with the Bible. Go, just go and ask Jesus, what? What did you mean by that? And then listen, he always answers. I've always found that to be that when you go back and ask Jesus, what did you mean? He'll answer in that. And he answered to them. He said to them um, in verse 37, he who sows the good seed is the son of man. That's Jesus, remember? What did we just see? The son of man sitting on a cloud. The field is the world. You go down and harvest the earth, right? This is literally line for line what we saw in Revelation 14. And the good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares, the weeds, are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is, what does it say? Uh, verse 39, the end of the age. The reapers are the angels. Therefore, the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend those who practice lawlessness. This is talking about the second part of the harvest we're going to see in a second. And will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth, and then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Do you see what Jesus is saying? Wheat and tares. And by the way, the, the problem with wheat and tares, one of the greatest problems is they actually look identical to each other. Like the, the challenge is not just pulling them out by the roots, but knowing which one you're pulling because they look the same. How would the farmer ever know then if they look the same? The answer is when wheat is mature, I don't know if you ever noticed this, Jace, whatever, you're driving out into the wheat fields outside of Kansas, whatever. When the wheat is fully ripe, the uh, heads of wheat begin to bend and bow over. But the wheat stands straight, the weeds stand straight up. Isn't that an amazing picture of what Jesus was trying to say? Here's how you'll know who's going to bow to me. That's who I know are mine, and those who aren't will know, and we'll harvest it that way. Now that said, what I see in this for us is this. We live in a time right now where we are in a world with wheat and tares in the field with us. The problem with wheat and tares is they all look the same. There might be people in here that think, oh, I, I, I'm just here for this or whatever. My job isn't to try to figure out who the wheat and the tares are. Not your job either. That's Jesus' job. We go in here trying to figure out wheat and tares, and all we do is tear up churches and divide and burn us down. Our job is to tell the truth, speak the truth in love, and let... Look, when I retired my position as Holy Ghost Jr., it was a, a big day for me. Like, oh, I pretty much suck at this job anyway. So if I just you know, let the Holy Spirit get back up on the throne and let him do his job, I don't have to worry about that anymore. Now, you might be thinking, yeah, but Darren, what about wolves? The Bible does speak of that. It does. And you know wolves quite easily by what they eat. 
If they have the blood of sheep on their mouths, those are wolves. And we take care of that differently. But this is not what that is talking about. This is speaking specifically of people who are planted in amongst Christians who are following a false Christ or a false gospel. I could go way down the road as to what I think some of that looks like with progressive Christianity and what we're seeing right now in some of our own world here. But the fact is, as we do is we preach the gospel. We preach Christ, him crucified, the blood sacrifice, the atonement, the resurrection, forgiveness of sins, and let the Holy Spirit do the rest. And part of that, though, is what's happening in this next part of this story in Revelation because the wheat, and by the way, what did Jesus say in John chapter four? He said to his disciples, look under the fields, they are white with harvest. Isn't that even that great imagery? White, being made white in the, but he said white. And he said back in John, hey, look, there's plenty for all of us to do to participate in planting and being a part of planting seeds for the harvest of Jesus. And I want to show you this because this just happened yesterday in uh, Nepal. I, I don't know how many total were baptized, but it was hundreds, not dozens. These are in the remote parts of Nepal where there are no gospel witness. There is no, we've built a church there last year that is about to be finished. Um, Berendra texted me, wanted me to come to Nepal. Like in his mind, I could just come next week because it doesn't really register that that's not quite how that works. But he wants us to come over and, and, and inaugurate the building. And it's in a, it was in a village where there is no, there was no Jesus thing. There was no church. There was no witness. There were no Christians. And Jesus is on the move in this village. He's on the move in all over southern Nepal right now. And you and I as conduit church get to be a part of a harvest of souls that one day Jesus himself sitting on a cloud will harvest and welcome home to him. If you're in a harvest situation, it's good news if you are the crop, bad news if you're the wheat, but this is amazing news if you are part of the crop of what Jesus is growing. Tim Bassanio, the work you guys, Keith, that you're doing, reaching right now into other nations through MXTV, the stories that are coming in right now of souls coming to Christ. There's, you guys, you're not going to hear, but you know that CNN's not going to tell you about this, right? You understand that that's not on their radar. But I'm telling you, anecdotally speaking, Jesus is on the move. Muslims are coming to Jesus in record numbers. Hindus are coming to Christ in record numbers. They're coming to record numbers in Kenya and in Uganda, Honduras, around the world. And we get to be a part of this harvest. The fields are white. Jesus said it, and it's still true. Now that said, the second one, these grapes, what on earth? He switches metaphors. He goes from wheat into grapes. And it's amazing because the grapes itself, this idea of the grapes of wrath, that is an image that God uses throughout Scripture, Isaiah Jeremiah, Jesus himself, the cup, uh, may this cup be passed from me, right? This right here, the idea, the wine press, and even just a few verses earlier, verses 10 and 11, they're going to drink from the cup of God's wrath. Now this, in a Western context, is uncomfortable because we don't necessarily like the idea, we're too sophisticated, of course, to like the idea of anger from God. 
And I would like to tell you, if you're looking for Western privilege, look no further than that. The wrath of God, without the wrath of God, there is little to no hope for people in Southeast Asia right now. And I would like to suggest to you, by the way, that the same is for us as well. That without the wrath of God, we have no hope. And here's what I mean by that. Um, I can't show you their pictures, but I can at least put a couple of WhatsApp chat messages that have been going on in just the last few days. This is sort of what my days are filled with right now, interacting with our partners in uh, Southeast Asia, interacting with, hey, there's Berendera right there, uh, interacting with trying to get people out of these brick kilns, out of slavery. Right now, we have one family... Actually, 20, I say one family. We thought it was 21. I was thinking, man, this dude must be super virile. But it turns out there's four families. They're all being held in one kiln. We've already wired the money. Nine of these 21 people so far have been shot. And I mean shot like shot. Not to kill, but to torture them. One at a time. And if you will convert to Islam, we will stop doing this to you. They're nine in, and nine for nine so far has said, we will not, where could we go? Jesus has the words of life. How could we turn our back on him? And we have an opportunity to rescue them. We've already sent the money. I think it's $5,000. Uh, the kiln owner is being ridiculous. Uh, there are laws, weirdly enough, there are laws in this country uh, that prohibit this. So we're hiring a lawyer. We're hiring government Officials, if we got to bribe, grease palms, I don't care. We'll do what it takes. We'll get them out of there. But that's today. <laughs> and then there's tomorrow. And there's three other families, and they're trapped. They've got a brick kiln owner that's being just as ornery. So we've got another lawyer. We've got another uh, government officials. We're paying for it all. We want to get them out of there. That's what we get to do and be a part of. But if you're there, and this is what's happening to you, and by the way, maybe they think they're the lucky ones because they got out. Maybe they think they're the lucky ones because they didn't get killed. But if the wrath of God doesn't have something to say about this, then what kind of a God do we serve? The cup of wrath for those. When it talks about Christ rejecting in sinful world, it's not just, like we think of that a lot in the Western context, which is, I just don't want to follow Jesus. I want to do this other thing. I'm free to be me. And so we don't understand the, the idea that a Christ-rejecting sinful world does Christ-rejecting and sinful things to people. And that the wrath of God is what gives them hope to say that I don't have to go and avenge myself with the kiln owner because God will do that. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Without the wrath of God, we have no hope at all. Now, the problem with that is that all have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. It's easy to sit and throw rocks at a kiln owner in Southeast Asia and forget that my part of this problem, the social network, uh, social dilemma thing that's been out on Netflix. But Shannon and I probably, I think we picked the wrong time to take a principled stand against Netflix and cancel our account uh, because we didn't get to see this. But I've been taking clips off of um, 
of YouTube. There's clips before they get taken down. And one of the things that I saw in this was when they were trying to figure out what the problem is with social media. Has anybody, how many have actually seen The Social Dilemma? A few of us in here, okay. All the thinkers for sure. And you've seen that there's a problem going on. But here's a few, you might have seen this. The beginning, uh, one of the interviewees, um, they were asked this question, what is the problem with the social media system? And every single one of them that I saw uh, were silent. They didn't have an answer. And here's why. They didn't have an answer because the answer is Romans 1. The answer is human nature and Social, humanistic, secularism does not have an answer for that. Because secularism says we're all good with some bad tendencies. But social dilemma proves that that's actually not true at all. One of the guys at the end actually articulates it pretty well when he says that I guess the problem with social media is it gives a platform to the worst in us. The worst in us is actually the problem. So we are all, Romans 1, plugged into this matrix of the worst of us into one entity that exists across the world. My point is, is that that's a problem because if the wrath of God is just, then all of us must be punished. But what about the mercy of God? And that, you guys, is where the cross, the justice and the mercy of God come together in one place. Because at the very end, and I'm going to land with this, we started in this verse with verse 14. What did Jesus say? Pray to the Lord of the harvest, right? That he would send. Who is the Lord of the harvest? Jesus himself. I looked, verse 14, and there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like the Son of Man, with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Jesus himself is the one in charge of the harvest. And in this passage, you read it a few verses into that, down at the end, it says that they were trampled. The angel swung his sickle, gathered its grapes, threw them into the great winepress of, gra- of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city. Blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as a horse's bridles for 180 miles. If you were to try to think about the entire crimes of humanity throughout history, starting with Abel, right? Coming all the way up into modern times and what we're experiencing in our own culture. If all of the blood of all of those victims were to be gathered in one place, do you wonder how much blood that would be? I don't know. Maybe it would be 180 miles long and six feet deep, 20 feet wide. I don't know. What we know is it's unimaginable. The amount of blood that humanity has spilled for an eternity it's a metaphor. We don't know what it's, it's speaking of something. We don't know what it is, but it is speaking of something. That that is the crimes of humanity for an eternity. And who could possibly pay for that? Who could possibly cover that for us? When Jesus was crucified, it says that not a bone in his body was broken. Isn't that interesting? In Roman crucifixions, they would break their legs at the end to suffocate them, but they didn't break Jesus' leg. They stabbed him in the side with a spear. Do you ever wonder why? 
where is blood made in the water, in the body? Where is blood made? The bones, in the marrow. No broken bones means no broken flow of blood. It means there would be an eternal supply of the blood that would be needed to pay for the sins. As First John tells us, not just my sins, but the sins of the whole world. Jesus went into the wine press for us. Isaiah 53 talks about his visage. When you get into Revelation 19, you actually see Jesus wearing white robes splattered with blood on them. The image of him in the wine press for us. And I believe it's as simple as this. Either he's going to go in the wine press for you or you're going in there without him. Those are our two choices. The wine press is there. It is full of the anger of all of the things that we have done. It is full. It is going to be pressed. And your way out of it is allowing Jesus to enter it for you. And by the way, when they're done crushing wine, grapes, what do they make with it? They make wine. And wine, it's sort of an incongruent thing here, isn't it? Wine is joy, right? Wine is party. Wine is celebration made out of crushing. Think of a movie that you've watched where the movie is um, somebody that is, uh, it's probably every Liam Neeson movie, right? Like where everything goes wrong, his daughter's kidnapped and he's got to save him and everybody's either beating up all of his people. And the entire movie is him basically being humiliated, being beaten and being marginalized until that moment when he finally rises up and opens up a can and takes care of the bad guy. And that feeling that you feel at that moment when that happens, when the tide turns, that feeling, what is that feeling? Is joy. Because it's all being taken care of. Justice has been served. When the Christ-rejecting people that have tortured, that have beaten, that have refused to allow Christ to go into the wine press in their place are now in the wine press now. The people that John was writing to who had been beaten, who had been imprisoned, who had been marginalized and robbed and killed. His people had been taken away from their city, from their nation. Pulled. Imagine someone coming in here and taking us all and spreading us all out and we feel no hope anymore. What do you want? You want justice and when justice comes, it would make you feel joyful. That's why the wine is a part of this because as we drink from that wine, you drink from the cup that we drink from that we call communion. It is the cup of justice, mercy for ourselves and justice for those who have rejected them. And maybe you don't feel that need yet because you haven't been oppressed enough. But come with me to Pakistan. Come with me to Nepal. Go to Honduras, to Haiti. And you'll see a group of people that don't read this with Western eyes. They read this with pure eyes of, yeah, please. God, how long before you avenge us? How long, God? And then one day, the marriage supper of the Lamb, we will all raise a glass all of our loved ones in Christ will be there. Our children will be there. And we'll all raise a glass to celebrate to Jesus of the wine of joy. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Stand to your feet and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you glory and praise for this.
Lord, it is a bloodbath. It is us being washed in your blood. Though our sins were as scarlet, they are now washed white as snow. Jesus, because your blood was splattered on your clothes, now our clothes are clean. We're so grateful for that. And Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters here in this world that, that right now, even those that are oppressing, the, you died for them too and you want them to come to salvation. You want them to come and to repent. Let us, Lord, be focused on the work of the harvest that is in front of us. We'll let you take care of the judgment and we'll take care of the planting and the sowing of the seeds. Jesus, we celebrate brothers and sisters in Southeast Asia right now that are already free, brothers and sisters that are going to go free, brothers and sisters that have been baptized even in just the last few days. And Lord, even for our own people in our own town, would you keep us safe, healthy, protected? When we gather, it is not without risk. It's just that the risk is worth it for what you want to do through us. Jesus, we love you. It is in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you next week, if not sooner.